our Hebrew scripture reading this morning comes from Isaiah chapter 7. Ahaz, the king of Judah, is bracing for an attack from the king of Syria and northern king of Israel. As he considers alliances and shows the bravado, God instructs the prophet Isaiah to help Ahaz widen his perspective. May a glimpse into this story help us better understand Matthew's language of Emmanuel in that familiar Christmas story. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, his heart and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the Lord said to Isaiah, Go forth to meet Ahaz and say to him, Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrand, because they say, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. And if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God let it be deep as Sheol, or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you weary mortals that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son, and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey, by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. But beware, in those days the Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. The Lord will bring upon you the king of Assyria. Our gospel reading this morning, again, comes from the first chapter of Matthew. This is how the birth of Jesus came about. When Jesus' mother, Mary, was engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, an upright person, unwilling to disgrace her, decided to divorce her quietly. This was Joseph's intention when suddenly the angel of God appeared in a dream and said, Joseph, heir to the house of David, don't be afraid to wed Mary. It is by the Holy Spirit that she has conceived this child. She is to have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, our God saves, because he will save the people from their sins. All this happened to fulfill what God had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth, and the child will be named Emmanuel, a name that means God is with us. When Joseph awoke, he did as the angel of God had directed, and they went ahead with the marriage. He did not have sex with her until she had given birth. She had a son, and they named him Jesus. On the night of my 21st birthday, I was in Bolivia, eating dinner around a small table of Southern Baptist missionaries. And this isn't how most 21-year-olds dream of celebrating that big night, but 
I had convinced myself that was exactly where I wanted to be. I was doing mission work I believed in, teaching a gospel I was certain about. I knew where my life was headed and what I'd be doing. When I returned to the United States at the end of the summer, it was to start seminary in Texas. And as I began, I wore my faith like a sweater, sometimes comfortable and warm, other times itchy and too small. The year I turned 21 was the same year a pastor named Rob Bell released a book called Love Wins, which I know that some of you have studied here with Steve Jolly. While you studied it, though, I picked it up on an airplane solely for the sake of disproving it. I knew without having to read it that it was heresy, but everyone at school was talking about it, and I wanted to be able to tell them more specifically why they were wrong. My plane had barely left the ground when there in the first chapter, Bell asked a question. Does God punish people with infinite eternal torment for things they did in their few finite years of life? Is it just a matter of being born in the right place, family, or country where you'll hear and accept the gospel? Or because you were fortunate enough to have a youth pastor who related better to the kids? Or is it a matter of God choosing you instead of others? What if the missionary that was going to tell you about Jesus got a flat tire? What kind of God is that? Well, I reached into my apologetics logic for a good answer, but what it gave me back was, well, that's a good question. I kept reading, and the more I read, the more I felt I'd found some kind of loose thread in the Christian sweater I wore, and I couldn't help but pull at it. If it isn't about salvation from hell, I thought, then what is it about? What was Jesus' death for? What was Jesus for? What is the Bible even about? I kept pulling. By the time I landed, I felt at the same time liberated and vulnerable, like I had unraveled my whole sweater. When Claire picked me up at the airport, I remember nervously saying, you know, I think our future might lay outside of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's my impression that the sort of people who tend to be attracted to a place like Northminster each have some kind of story like that. This place seems to be full of people who have been disillusioned with some piece, or perhaps many pieces, of the way the Christian story has often been told. Maybe it was the story the church was telling about LGBTQ people that did it. Maybe it was questioning the justice of a God who would send someone to eternal conscious torment based on only a few short subjective years of human experience. Maybe you noticed some Bible stories didn't quite add up and began wondering if the Bible really was what you'd been told it was. Maybe you noticed that Christians seemed far more interested in political power than practicing what they preached. But whatever it was, most of us here today have come across some loose thread and begun to pull. Whether out of curiosity or desperation, we pulled and we pulled until what was once a warm, broken-in sweater seemed only a tangle of threads at our feet. And then whether it was by choice or because someone asked us to, we had to leave. 
find a new way to weave a narrative together in a way that seemed to be true by the light of our own experience of God. And if you've been through this process, then you have some measure of reverence for the fact that there are many ways to weave the Christian story together, and that different ways of telling the story tend to foster different kinds of fruit. One story might produce the fruits of love and joy and peace, while another fosters the fruit of pride and oppression and bitterness. But however many threads we've pulled, however much humble reweaving we've done, the work is never quite finished. There's always some piece of inherited script or story, big or small, that we've inherited, but we've never gotten around to touching or perhaps we don't really want to. There are some narratives we've swallowed uncritically, loose threads that we haven't found or haven't been interested in. And when this happens, we find ourselves reaching into this old theological grab bag of ideas and phrases that we don't really believe anymore, but it's just the best we've got. It's like becoming a parent and realizing with horror that in times of stress, you're using those exact same phrases and threats that your parents used that you swore you would never use. The reason I bring this up, particularly now in this season, is because I wonder how much this is the case for us when it comes to Christmas. When it comes to Christmas, our culture has created a strong current in which we can be swept away. It will give us a story and a script full of imagery and pathos like no other holiday, and it's easy to get caught up in it. Not that there's necessarily anything wrong with that. If you need a break, if you need time to sing and eat with the rest of your family, that is great. Enjoy it. Be kind to yourself. This sermon might not be for you right now. But if you found yourself disappointed, if you found yourself wondering, if you found yourself hungry for a better story, if for whatever reason, it's just not working for you anymore, then maybe it's time to start pulling at threads. It began to unravel for me when I began studying Isaiah for the first time, the passage that we read today. That was the first loose thread I found in my Christmas sweater. In this morning's gospel reading, the storyteller wrote, All this happened to fulfill what God has said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and give birth, and the child will be called Emmanuel, a name that means God with us. Well, according to the story I'd inherited, that passage meant two very important things. First, that the prophets predicted Jesus' birth because it was part of God's unfolding plan to save humanity. And second, that Jesus was born of a virgin because his father was God. But then there's Isaiah. The first time I read it, I was shocked at how politically contextual it was. The prophet Isaiah offering a specific sign to King Ahaz that a child would be born. And before the child grew up, the two nations the king feared will have fallen. It wasn't a prediction about the coming Messiah that I found but a prophet pointing to a specific young pregnant woman whose child is actually born in the very next chapter. 
Diving deeper, I learned that this Hebrew word, alma, translated here as virgin, more directly means young woman or maiden. On some linguistic level, it's true, the word could definitely connote a virgin, but there's nothing in this passage to suggest that Isaiah is talking about a woman who is a virgin when she gives birth. In fact, in the next chapter, Isaiah is revealed to be the child's father. So where did this virgin birth language even come from? Well, I kept pulling the thread, and it turned out that when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek in a document called the Septuagint, the translators used the word parthenos, which leans more towards the connotation of virgin. So when the Christian scriptures were being crafted using the Septuagint as their source material, it was the word virgin that carried over because it was an excellent cradle in the imagination to talk about a man they would refer to as the son of God. What this meant to me, though, was that the whole idea of the prophets predicting the birth and that Jesus was born of a virgin was based on not much, it turned out. This makes me think about the book Educated by Tara Westover, which the Northminster Book Club is currently reading. It's a memoir about a Mormon survivalist family growing up in the mountains. And in the opening chapter, the author recalls her father leading their family devotional time and reading this passage from Isaiah. Westover writes, Butter and honey shall he eat, Dad droned on, low and monotone, weary from a long day of hauling scrap, that he may know how to refuse the evil and choose the good. And then she tells of how this verse caught in her father's imagination, and he read it, over and over inquiring of the Lord what divine doctrine he had happened upon. The next morning, she writes, Dad purged our fridge of milk, yogurt, and cheese, and that evening when he came home, his truck was loaded with 50 gallons of honey. Isaiah doesn't say which is evil, butter or honey, Dad said, grinning as my brothers lugged the white tubs to the basement, but if you ask, the Lord will tell you. When Dad read this verse to his mother, she laughed in his face. I've got some pennies in my purse, she said. You better take them, because they'll be all the sense you've got. This kind of fanatical misinterpretation is funny to read about in a memoir about fundamentalism, but way less funny to realize that your holy scriptures make the same interpretive move. Once that thread came loose, I found another. I realized for the first time that Matthew and Luke have different contradicting accounts of the birth story, each with their own unique nuance, that our culture had unceremoniously smashed together in an attempt at harmonization. Mark and John don't seem to think it's important at all. I learned that in the first and second centuries, there were rumors flying around meant to discredit Christianity that Jesus' mother actually had a scandalous relationship with a Roman soldier, an idea that I used in last week's sermon. And the early church may have come up with these stories of Mary's virginity to overcompensate in the other direction. I kept pulling. I then began to notice the hypocrisy of celebrating a poor family giving birth in a barn by spending hundreds or thousands of dollars on presents, of celebrating the legacy of a man who told us to give up our wealth by feeding the spirit of consumerism in our children. I kept pulling. I realized that Jesus wasn't born on the 25th, which might seem obvious to some of you, but rather that was the day that Rome celebrated the birth of their sun god, 
And when Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the empire, he decided people were used to celebrating on that day anyway, so it would do for Christmas. I kept pulling. I know some of this sounds stupid. I mean, who cares about how Rome decided on the 25th? And I know that far more intelligent people than me have looked into these same discrepancies and still come away with very different conclusions. But I mention these because each unique realization was a hammer to my fragile sense of certainty. Loose threads in my tapestry of faith. They were reminders of just how much I had inherited, swallowed uncritically. And with each question, the narrative unraveled until what I had left seemed like just a tangle of threads at my feet. So I became an evangelist of the bad news. as most do when they hit this stage of deconstruction. Because it feels so satisfying to be angry. It's cathartic. We've discovered that what has come apart was not a shelter, but a cage. And we spout our newfound cynicism like street preachers that can't understand why everybody else isn't pulling at these same threads too. It's fun to tear things apart, to call out the translators, to blame the patriarchy, to criticize the power-hungry church, some of us are there right now, and that's okay. Because this is not the sort of work that you can hurry through. It's not something you can rush, because it's not until those narratives have come unwound that you can get to the best part. Reconstruction. Second naivete. Reweaving by the light of our own experience with God until we find what is most true, and that is where the magic happens. When I finally came back to it, I was awestruck by the stories I found on the pages of Matthew and Luke. They were no longer vessels for cold, dogmatic beliefs, no longer pages of history or ammunition in a culture war to keep Christ in Christmas. But instead, I found a story full of, of subversive political imagery about toppling colonial empires and standing up to power-hungry rulers. I found a story full of social statements about who matters and why and the unexpected places you can find God. I found a story full of poetic references to Hebrew law and prophets, like Isaiah, that used their common religious language to show how embodied love fulfills all things. I found a story full of mystical interpretations about the blurry lines between what is human and what is the divine. And I found a story full of poetry about how hope, peace, joy, and love are born into this world and how they are good news for all people. The story of Christmas and what it means for our world is bold and it's transformative, but it's only for those brave enough to discover it by pulling on the threads of that worn out Christmas sweater that we've inherited. You may come to very different conclusions than I did, and that is great. Perspective is a gift we can offer one another, but whatever thread you pull, Whatever story you uncover, 
May you find that the truth is never threatened by your questions. May you find yourself in the midst of the story of love made flesh, transformed by it, allowing God's love to be made flesh again in you. And for those of you hungry for a better story, may you find it in this Christmas season. Merry Christmas, Northminster.